The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. These companies want to keep this stuff out of court. They don't want the constitutionality of this to be tested in court because it's I argued that it's not constitutional. I, I think at the very least, it's an issue that's up in the air, whether this is legal or not. And so if you can keep this out of court, you then it won't be held unconstitutional. You can keep selling this data. So these companies often have contracts in place, almost like non-disclosure agreements that say, don't mention our product in, in a public record. Don't mention our product in court. You, you can use it to generate leads and sort of dig this evidence up through other means. That's a process referred to as parallel construction. And it's sort of a way of hiding surveillance techniques. I'm Stephanie Pell, Senior Editor at Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, December 4th, 2023. Is the Fourth Amendment doing any work anymore? In a forthcoming article entitled Government Purchases of Private Data, Matthew Tokson, a professor at the University of Utah, S.J. Quinney College of Law, details how, in recent years, federal and state agencies have begun to purchase location information and other consumer data, as government attorneys have mostly concluded that purchasing data is a valid way to bypass Fourth Amendment restrictions. I sat down with Matthew to discuss this article, where he attempts to bring this constitutional evasion to light. We talked about the two main arguments offered for why the purchase of private data does not violate the Fourth Amendment, his responses to these arguments, and the recommendations he makes to courts, legislators, and government agencies to address the Fourth Amendment and privacy concerns surrounding government purchases of private data. It's the Lawfare Podcast, December 4th. Matthew Tokson on government purchases of private data. Matthew, can you start by telling us what prompted you to write this article? Yeah, actually, it was an article that I I read uh, online about the Barnstable, Massachusetts Police Department, um, Barnstable uh, being on Cape Cod, purchasing location data on people, you know, purchasing a service where they could track people's location data via their cell phones. And, you know, Barnstable, Mass, I associate it with uh, the Cape Cod of my youth, this sort of small town, not a whole lot of crime there. And it just sort of struck me and shocked me a little bit that the Barnstable uh, Police Department felt that they needed to closely track uh, people's locations. And that's sort of when I, I'd heard earlier stories about the government purchasing, you know, location data for, um, for various purposes. But that's when I, it, it sort of struck me that this had 
grown to a sort of crazy extent and uh, was a little more ubiquitous than I thought. And that's basically when I decided to write the article. Can you describe the kinds of data that law enforcement are purchasing? For the most part, it's data collected by cell phone apps. Uh, There are other sources of information, but that's sort of the main one. And typically, we're talking about location data that apps might collect, uh, oftentimes weather apps, games, you know, uh, could be dating apps, things like that. They, uh, these apps collect this data for marketing purposes uh, mostly, and they sell it to data brokers. Some data brokers have um, created software that can help law enforcement track people with, with this data. Now, there's, there's other data as well that government agencies have purchased um, of an internet traffic data, like IP logs and things like that, where it's a little... Um, hard to know exactly what they can tell. But typically, if you have a list of IP addresses that people have visited, you can sort of tell where they've been on the internet. So that could be very sensitive. And then there's there's other types, but those are sort of the big main categories that I'm aware of. And you referenced the fact that data brokers are selling these data sets. Is that the primary kind of company that is selling these data sets or are there other companies as well? I think that's the primary kind of company, but typically when we're talking about uh, the company that's you know selling to law enforcement, it's often a specialized subsidiary of a larger data broker, and they might they typically create sort of specialized software that can help track uh, phones or you know other units within a location, or perhaps you know enter someone's name or other information, uh, or enter a cell phone number and sort of reverse look them up. In other words, the tracking function of this, this software tends to be a lot greater and a lot more capable than what you purchase from a data broker if you were, you know, an advertising company, which is usually just going to be sort of a big block, a huge Excel spreadsheet or, or other database uh, of anonymized consumer information. So, as you were researching and writing this article, I think you came across cases and situations where law enforcement purchase location data, and we're now seeing how these data are actually being used in an investigation. Can you give us an example of that? Sure. Yeah. My favorite example is um, it was um, a government agency purchases data uh, around the border, and they're seeing cell phones, you know, transit back and forth across the border in a very straight line. And they eventually figure out that this is an underground sort of smuggling tunnel. The tunnel begins in a house on the Mexico side, and it terminates in a Kentucky Fried Chicken uh, on the United States side. This is a Kentucky Fried Chicken that went out of business. And they, they use this data to sort of figure out that the owner of this Kentucky Fried Chicken was involved in drug trafficking. But they don't want to sort of exposed that they that they know this or that they're purchasing this data. So they contact local law enforcement, I believe this was in Arizona, and they say, look, there's this, there's this individual, his name's uh, Ivan Lopez, you're going to want to pull him over. We, we suspect he has lots of drugs in his car. So the, the local police pull him over basically on a pretext. They, they said that there was an equipment violation, like a you know, taillight was out or, or his license plate was obscured or something like that. They pull him over. They find the drugs that the government already knows are there. And they sort of prosecute him from there. So it's it's an example of the government using this data, which originally collected for immigration enforcement in this case, and giving it to another police agency and also sort of hiding the fact that they've obtained uh, these massive sort of databases of location data by purchasing them. And I know we'll 
touch on this probably later in the conversation, but it seems to be one of the challenges of of learning and and regulating these practices are the fact that law enforcement uses of these data are often obscured downstream in in investigations where they may provide leads. That's right. I, I think largely at the direction of the data brokerage companies themselves, these companies want to keep this stuff out of court. They don't want the constitutionality of this to be tested in court because it's, I argued that it's not constitutional. I, I think at the very least, it's an issue that's up in the air, whether this is legal or not. And so if you can keep this out of court, you then it won't be held unconstitutional. You can keep selling this data. So these companies often have contracts in place, almost like non-disclosure agreements that say, don't mention our product in, in a public record. Don't mention our product in court. You, you can use it to generate leads and sort of dig this evidence up through other means. That's a process referred to as parallel construction. And it's sort of a way of hiding surveillance techniques. Uh, we see that a lot when we're looking at government purchases of private data. So who is allowed, so to speak, to purchase these data sets? You've talked about law enforcement purchases, but are they marketed and sold to other audiences as well? When we're talking about the sort of tracking specialized software, those seem to be marketed exclusively to law enforcement. And there are companies that will sell these services to law enforcement, and they'll also help them um, throughout their investigation to you know, de-anonymize uh, an anonymous phone number, for example. You know, The marketing, at least, is, is very specialized towards law enforcement. And if you try to purchase these services, you're, you're not going to be able to, uh, I guess, unless you lied about who you are, perhaps. In terms of location data in general, sort of more raw data without the specialized tracking ability, that stuff can be sold, is often sold from company to company, from a data broker to an advertising uh, service to a marketer, you know, marketing analysis, uh, sometimes to credit card companies. But that's, when we're talking about that data, we're, uh, as I said, typically we're talking about large anonymized databases. Now, it is possible to de-anonymize that information. Sometimes you can purchase information that's linked to names, but this is business-to-business sales. I have, purely out of academic interest, I've tried to purchase you know, useful location tracking information just to see if I could do it. And it's, there's just not a consumer-facing sort of store you can go to. You know, there's no stocking store um, where you can stock uh, whoever you like. This information is not available to the public. You know, with sufficient expertise, if you start a, a corporation, if you have millions of dollars, you might be able to get this information and process it in a way that could be useful for tracking someone. But that's not really available to the to the general public uh, in any meaningful way. It's it's hard to get if you're not a corporate entity, and the really useful stuff is, is almost impossible to get unless you're law enforcement. And so the fact that the data is not generally available to the public, I think, sets up nicely the main argument you make in your article, which is that law enforcement's purchase of location data likely violates the Fourth Amendment. So first of all, I want to start with the question of if law enforcement wasn't purchasing location data, how would it normally be required to obtain it? Is there a particular case that that provides some insight to that question? Yeah, absolutely. The in 2018, sort of the last major Fourth Amendment case uh, is called Carpenter versus United States, and the Supreme Court decides in that case that the police can't obtain uh, cell phone location data 
without a search warrant. What they were doing prior to Carpenter is there was a statute that sort of allowed you to get a court order, very easy to get. And you could get a court order, send it to Verizon or Sprint or, or whoever, and say, give us the location data for the past six months on you know 1-800, whatever, whatever phone number. And so police were doing that in a, in a fairly often. It was a fairly common uh, investigative tactic. The Supreme Court said, look, this data can be very um, revealing. There's a lot of it out there. It's very sensitive and private. And so we're going to require you to obtain a search warrant uh, before getting it, you know, even though it's held by the cell phone company and sort of is not your traditional private data. They extended the Fourth Amendment to that location information. So that's that was sort of the pre-Carpenter um, police were just sort of getting it directly through uh, what's called the 2703D court order, which, again, was fairly easy to get um, with a lower standard than probable cause. And for the Electronic Communication Privacy Act nerds out there, the 2703D order is part of that statute, I presume. That's that's correct. Uh, it, um, it often referred to as the Stored Communications Act, like this particular portion of, of the uh, ECPA, but it's all the, the ECPA. That That's correct. And the Carpenter case, as you noted, dealt with historical cell site location information, or often called CSLI. But with the type of data that you've been talking about, we're in many circumstances talking about much more precise location data from these apps. Is that a fair assessment? That's right. Uh, CSLI is sort of uh, location data that you obtain from the radio waves of a cell phone hitting various cell phone antennas, you know, throughout the, the city or, or town that, that you live in. And depending on how many cell phone towers there are, it can be more precise or less precise. But the uh, the cell phone location data that is available for purchase is typically not CSLI. It, it could be, but it's typically not. It's typically app generated. And that's often more precise because it's usually GPS based. And so you can usually pinpoint people a little more accurately with that information uh, than with CSLI. You know, the flip side of that is it's not as universal as CSLI, perhaps, uh, depending on the user, because CSLI is generated whenever a cell phone is on. But it's, it is often much more precise and sort of can reveal even more about a person's life because, because it so cl- follows them so closely. And as best you can tell, did the growth in law enforcement purchase of location data begin occurring after the Carpenter decision? Yes, I uh, I find that very interesting that a lot of major purchases of uh, cell phone location data were made by government agencies, especially federal agencies, almost immediately after Carpenter in the summer of 2018, which is uh, Carpenter was released in the, in the early summer of 2018. And so, you know, a month later, a few weeks later, some of the, uh, you know, Department of Homeland Security and the Defense Intelligence Agency are making purchases of cell phone location data. Now, this is circumstantial evidence, but it seems reasonably likely that they were making these purchases in order to engage in the location tracking that had just been uh, declared unlawful without a warrant by the Supreme Court. So I I think that timing is very revealing, uh, at least in some cases. So as you've indicated, prior to Carpenter, for the most part, the government was using these 2703D orders, which have a lower standard than a, a probable cause standard that you find in a warrant to obtain CSLI. Then Carpenter happens, and then we see this growth in the purchase of location data. 
So as you understand it, what are law enforcement's best arguments for why they can purchase what they would otherwise be generally required to get a warrant to obtain? And if I, I know you make several arguments in, in the article, so let's take them one, one at a time. Sure. So I think the first you know, main argument that, the, that uh, government attorneys have made is because this stuff is commercially available, it is unprotected by the Fourth Amendment. And the basis for that is the sort of general rule based on a case called Maryland versus Macon um, from a while back that you know the, the police officer can go into a store that's open to the public and purchase goods or, um, or what have you that, that any member of the public might purchase. And that's still a good law. So I think they're trying to draw an analogy between you know, purchasing something in a store and purchasing uh, location data. But that's not an argument that you find terribly convincing. I don't, in in large part because, uh, as we talked about a little bit, I don't think this stuff is really available to the public in any meaningful way. Again, I haven't been able to purchase it. There's no store you can go to and purchase detailed location data on someone, certainly not in a way that's useful for tracking uh, either. And so... So that you know takes it out of the that sort of realm of being publicly available in the first place. And I would also say that under cases like uh, Kylo versus United States and some prior cases, the court has has looked at you know types of surveillance that a member of the public can in theory undertake, and basically said, look, if this isn't in general public use, is if this isn't something that happens more than very rarely, we're not going to hold that to sort of erode the Fourth Amendment protections for something, right? In in Kylo, there was uh, the police used an infrared camera to scan the outside of someone's house. Now, you or I could buy an infrared camera. It's uh, unlike this location data. We could we could buy an infrared camera. We could likely scan the inside the outside of someone's house uh, from a public area without um, getting in trouble for it. Although I suppose you maybe they'll sue us. That's sort of up in the air. But Not very neighborly. Yeah, it wouldn't be. Yeah, they would. They would probably give us a dirty look uh, and not understand what we were doing with this large camera. But, but the the court said, yeah, sure, a member of the public could do that. A contractor or someone could do that. That's typically who uses these cameras. But it's not in general public use. This is not something that is widely used enough to erode reasonable expectations of privacy. And I think there's an analogy to that to, to this situation where you know even if a few sophisticated actors might be able to purchase this data, that's not enough to say that the Fourth Amendment doesn't protect it. And it's certainly nothing like uh, a situation where you walk into a store and purchase something, and so the police officer should be able to do the same thing. I think this is you know quite different from that. Accordingly, I think the Fourth Amendment uh, still protects this data, which is as a, as the Supreme Court has said to to CSLI something very similar is private, you know, is generally protected by the Fourth Amendment. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. 
That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. And has there been any court that has addressed this question of whether law enforcement's purchase of private data violates the Fourth Amendment rights under Carpenter? Yeah, there has been one court that looked at a service that was working closely with law enforcement. And, it, and so they were, law enforcement were basically purchasing a tracking service from them. They would ping someone's cell phone and get sort of a CSLI-like uh, response as to where a person was at any given moment. The only reason this made it to court was there was a criminal prosecution that sort of obliquely mentioned it. And so the party took a, took offense to that, sued uh, for a constitutional uh, violation under Section 1983. And, and so this got evaluated by the court. And the court basically said, we think that this company is so closely uh, working with the government to track these people, that it's essentially a state actor. So I think there are some lessons there for for a lot of the tracking services that I study, which also work closely with the the government to um, help them track people, often uh, work to help them de-anonymize people once they have a target in mind. It may not be exactly the same because the way that that a company tracks someone may vary. This may have been more involved. Some other companies may have less direct involvement. But According to the the one case uh, sort of on this issue, at least at the time uh, that, I, that I wrote the piece, which was fairly recently, that court said, look, this is unconstitutional. This is basically a private company doing a government function, uh, engaging in state action and uh, violating a people's privacy under the Fourth Amendment. And was that a district court opinion? Yes. Uh, yeah, that was a, that was just a district court opinion. So we still, it still remains to be seen what the, uh, the federal appeals courts uh, w- will say about it. And certainly the Supreme Court ha- uh, hasn't addressed this particular issue at all. So you make a, a second or you identify a, a second argument that government attorneys generally make about why they don't need to obtain a warrant to get this kind of location, purchase this kind of location data. Yeah, that's right. They also argue, in addition to the fact that it's purchased, that because cell phone users typically, you know, hit sort of permit uh, on their on their apps to allow the app to collect data, that they may have no reasonable expectation of privacy in the data, even under Carpenter. Right? In Carpenter, with CSLI, you sort of have no choice but to reveal it. Here, they're saying, oh, they sort of give permission for the apps to collect it. Can you unpack that a little bit? I mean, basically, is the argument that somehow every time I give an app permission to collect data that I am simultaneously giving it permission to share data in a way that then diminishes my Fourth Amendment rights? Yeah, that that is uh, the argument. And, and I push back on that uh, in my piece for a couple reasons. One is, I, I think this if we're talking about consent to like a Fourth Amendment search, I don't think merely you know giving uh, weather.com's weather app you know permission to to view your location is anything like 
you know, giving consent to the government to collect that uh, information downstream and use it against you. It's also the case that I don't think, you know, 99% of people when they're clicking, you know, yes uh, on the app, have a sense of where that data might go, even, you know, excluding law enforcement. If we're just talking about data brokers and subsequent sales to third-party marketers, you know, that stuff's not disclosed in the in the initial permission screen. The, the, the permission request is typically really minimal, doesn't really say almost anything about how the information will be used, especially when we're talking about marketing. And so, you know, so I don't think it's a meaningful um, waiver of any constitutional right uh, for those reasons. It's also, I think, the case that usually it's not much of a choice. You know, it, it's a choice, but it's not really a choice. You can deny your app's permission to do to collect uh, various kinds of data, but oftentimes they won't work or they won't work properly. You know, they'll be they'll be greatly diminished. And so, for for these and and even more reasons, I think. Giving an app permission to collect your data is not sufficient to sort of waive your Fourth Amendment right in, in that in that data if it's otherwise private, if it's otherwise sensitive uh, under Carpenter. We have not seen that particular issue in this context addressed by a court yet. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, you see it a little bit in the geofence warrant context, a, a completely different sort of issue involving, you know, location data collected by Google and obtained usually via a warranted search. Although geofence warrants are sort of their own special thing where the, the police get a warrant for all the cell phones in a location. Um, so I think there have been a case or two that talk a little bit about, you know, is that, do, do people give their their permission for that? But even that's a little bit different because, uh, Google is a little more detailed in its in its disclosures. So you know some some lower courts uh, especially have touched a little bit on these issues, but not in a way that I think is particularly useful for uh, analyzing it in the government purchases context. Now, in addressing the, some of the privacy implications of law enforcement's ability to purchase private data, you talk about the interoperability of private and law enforcement surveillance. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, this is a concept uh, I'm borrowing from Karen uh, Levy, who has this great book about private surveillance, or, or rather public surveillance of long-haul truckers and how that's been used by their employers sort of against them. They, they sort of piggyback on the government's tracking of the truckers, for safety, which is done for safety reasons. And she talks about the interoperability of government surveillance and private surveillance, right? Once the government has you know, sensors in place to sort of make sure the long-haul truckers aren't driving too much or driving too fast or et cetera, the private entities can use that to track them as well. Um, this is, I, I believe her book's called Data Driven, and it's really like this concept from, the, from that and, and like uh, Kara Levy's work. But so I think what we're seeing is sort of the, the reverse of that here, which is you, you have, we have sort of extensive private data collection, right? Private, not so much private surveillance, but just extensive collection of consumer data as they use their cell phones, as they surf the internet, you know, as they move about the world. That data is collected almost exclusively for marketing purposes because it has some monetary value because you can sell it uh, to advertisers and marketers. But because that data collection is so unregulated and so ubiquitous, it creates an opportunity for law enforcement. And the government has now identified that opportunity. That's why we see, I think, an increase in government purchases in recent years. And so instead of creeping from sort of government surveillance to private surveillance, we're creeping from private data collection 
to government surveillance. And that's the interoperability. The the same data that you know your your the Angry Birds app collects on you uh, might be useful to law enforcement. And they they increasingly are able to obtain it. So I want to talk about some of the solutions to these issues that you propose in your article. And I want to start with how you would advise courts to address the problem. And, and I would just focus back on a comment that you made earlier in this discussion, and, and that is that oftentimes it is difficult for courts to even rule on these issues because the purchase of the data is obscured in the investigation. So it really never fully comes to light and it's often difficult then for defense attorneys to raise these issues. Yeah, that's right. I, I, often in the Fourth Amendment context, there are judicial solutions. Uh, and I've typically been an advocate of uh, court-based solutions for a lot of Fourth Amendment questions. Here, it might be a little different because it's often – it's so rare for the for government purchases to come before a court because the the data companies selling them are so reluctant to allow them to come into court, you know, to even be mentioned in court. So they're being used in the background, but it's – they're tough to challenge. And so if we're talking about uh, a sort of judicial solution, it's often uh, going to be th- – there's going to be a preliminary step which is doing like a FOIA request or engaging in FOIA uh, litigation or other transparency litigation to even get the information about what the government is doing. If you can, and, and there's some great people who write about that, uh, Rebecca Wexler, uh, Hannah Block uh, Weba, they, they've written some uh, articles that I find useful about sort of transparency led, uh, uh, litigation in the law enforcement area. But so you'd almost have to prevail in like a, you know, a FOIA uh, litigation or at least with a FOIA request to figure out what, you know, a given government agency or police department are doing. Once you have that information, maybe there could be a lawsuit and it would get into court. Um, but short of that, it's, it might be difficult to weigh these things in court. And so in, in this context, there may need to be a, a statutory solution. And there are members of Congress, uh, Ron Wyden uh, in particular, who's often a leader in privacy issues who have been working on legislation to prevent uh, sales of consumer app data to law enforcement. Senator Wyden uh, proposed, I believe it's called the Fourth Amendment is Not for Sale Act. It has not yet passed, but you know, is still being revised and, and potentially uh, reproposed. Um, and there are other you know, potential avenues of statutory law that might work that way. But there's a lot of things you could do uh, either to, to directly prohibit this stuff or you know, there, we could also obtain the sort of long-lost um, comprehensive privacy law at the federal level that we haven't really had. We have the, the ECPA, um, which was passed in the 80s and has been amended pretty minimally since, that is not really a, an effective comprehensive data privacy law for consumers. So we could have a more... Um, consumer-friendly, you know, uh, privacy law at the federal level, something that's a little bit more like uh, Europe's GDPR, where consumers um, have more rights and more protections, where companies have to get explicit consumer permission for downstream sales. And that requirement in particular is relevant here because if you, you, the way these markets flourish is once, you know, an app collects your data, 
they can sort of do what they want with it downstream, uh, even without your permission. They don't really get your permission for the downstream stuff. They collect it. They might get your permission for that, but then they sell it without your knowledge and certainly without your, your permission. In the, in the European context under the GDPR, you typically would need consumer permission for every subsequent use of the data. They, they use it initially for whatever purpose. If they're going to sell it to a data broker. If they're going to sell it to law enforcement, they would need to get your permission. And I think that kind of requirement would also likely prevent government purchases of sensitive private data because I don't know who or why uh, anyone would give their permission for to, to sell their data to law enforcement, right? Maybe if you offered them a ton of money, but I don't, I don't think they're going to give it up for free, which is basically what they're doing now under current U.S. law. So there, there are a variety of statutory solutions uh, that might prevent government purchases of sensitive data. And what about government agencies? Are there things that you think they should be doing now, notwithstanding the fact that the courts aren't currently preventing the sale and purchase of this data by law enforcement and the fact that as we are recording this podcast, you know, Congress has not taken any significant measures to limit its sale and purchase. Yeah, agencies uh, may play a, a really useful role here. The FTC uh, has looked into uh, more vigorous consumer data enforcement. They are typically the agency that has done the most previously, typically through case-by-case litigation and adjudication. Uh, but they have looked at some more comprehensive regulation you know, whether or not that will actually happen, I'm not sure, but they certainly have the capability. I think they have the statutory authority to promulgate rules that might get us uh, a large part of the way towards, you know, preventing downstream uses of sensitive consumer data, even um, directly preventing government purchases of private data. I think the FTC could certainly do that. And they have at least looked into uh, expanding their protections for consumer data. Um, I don't know if they've looked specifically at government purchases, um, but I, you know, these issues are on their radar. There was recently um, a government a study of government purchases, uh, you know, throughout the throughout the government by um, intelligence uh, agencies that sort of touched on the the massive scope of this practice. And so I think there's a little bit more awareness out there. Um, it remains to be seen whether the FTC or I suppose some other agency um, might come to address it. But I, I think they have the capability and to some extent the interest in addressing the, these purchases. Is there anything else that you would like to share with our listeners? I would just say to, to uh, keep paying attention to this issue. I think they'll, there will be some opportunities uh, to get legislation on the agenda that may prevent government purchases of sensitive data and any, you know, contact with congresspeople, any sort of uh, social media activity about this issue can help. Um, eventually, it may also reach uh, the courts, which would be really exciting to me. Um, so, you know, I, I, it's a it's a ongoing uh, issue. I think it's an exciting one. You know, stay tuned. Uh, we'll, we'll see what the future brings. Fair to say that for Fourth Amendment nerds, it's a really hot issue. I think I think so. Certainly for this for Fourth Amendment nerd, uh, I'm very excited about it and will continue to be even after the, the paper is uh, out and finished. Well, we'll have to leave it there today. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. This was a pleasure. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter through our website, lawfaremedia.org support. 
you'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfaremedia.org. The podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.